I fell in love with the online world around 1992. I was 10 years old. We had the family computer set up on a desk in the corner of the den. The constant flow of AOL and Prodigy discs kept our family online, even when our budget didn't really allow for it. I attended computer camp as a preteen. In college, I hauled my giant monitor and tower up multiple flights of stairs to my dorm room. And in 2003, toward the end of college, I started my very first blog. In retrospect, I loved being online and I loved computers, but I wasn't the digital prodigy that I could have been. I often hear people my age talk about their early memories of the internet and feel regret that I didn't push my interest further. I don't have any stories of hand coding my first website at the age of 14 or participating in niche internet subcultures and pretending to be 10 years older than I was. In my state and conservative Pennsylvania suburb, I didn't even know that was possible, and I was too much of a rule follower to find out. All that to say, I am on board when it comes to technological progress. I look forward to updating my devices, although I don't do it as frequently as I used to. New apps and features excite me, and I'm pretty quick to adapt to a user interface change. I am not a Luddite. Or so I thought. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. In her book, 12 Bites, the writer Jeanette Winterson explains the word Luddite still means an old-fashioned type who is anti-progress. But the Luddites of the early 19th century were not against progress. They were against exploitation. Now, I'm pretty sure my anarcho-democratic husband had tried to explain this to me before. But reading these lines was the first time what the Luddite movement actually stood for really sank in. Where once I had seen atavism and fear, I now saw labor politics I could get behind. When I picked up Gavin Muller's Breaking Things at Work, Why the Luddites Were Right About Why You Hate Your Job, I did so to learn more about the radical roots of Luddism and how the movement could inform my own thinking on the future of work. I also picked it up amidst the current fervor over AI and debates about whether the robots were finally coming for writers' jobs. I have a lot of complicated thoughts about AI. On one hand, I still feel some latent techno-optimism. I am predisposed to giving new technology the benefit of the doubt. There were ways that I could see ChatGPT could be used to make certain forms of work more accessible. But on the other hand, I worry, with many of my peers, about a near future in which our feeds are even more full of complete trash written in the spirit of quantity rather than quality. I also worry about the inevitable disruption of work that would leave many people either earning less or unemployed. 
In reading Breaking Things at Work, I expected to learn things but remain fairly ambivalent about the role of technology in work. But Muller can count me one convert to Luddism. Muller's project examines the connection between technology and capitalism, specifically how technology developed by capitalism furthers its goals. It compels us to work more, limits our autonomy, and outmaneuvers and divides us when we organize to fight back. Further, Muller seeks to show how technology at work can be a site of class struggle today. His argument isn't a call for a slower way of life. It's not an entreaty to a more humane or ethical form of labor. Muller's argument is a political one. The spirit of Luddism is one in which workers reassert their power and agency. Now today, as I said, the word Luddite means someone who fears or rejects technology or technological progress. Growing up in central Pennsylvania, I always associated the Luddites with the Amish, people who believe in a simpler way of life. In truth, the first Luddites were professional weavers who noticed how new machines were undermining their craft, their wages, and their power. Here's technology writer Clive Thompson in an interview for Quartz and Retro Report. The people that became the Luddites, the croppers, the weavers, um, they were the middle class of that day. And that's one of the reasons why they reacted so strongly when automation and machinery came along to take those jobs away, because they were falling from a pretty high height. We're talking about change that, that in a matter of a few years wiped out tons and tons of jobs. And so that makes you think of it today. It's no coincidence that these leaps forward in the technology of manufacturing corresponded with new understandings of the machinery of capitalism. Factory owners realized that faster machine-aided production would generate inventory to dramatically increase sales. They also realized that they no longer needed highly skilled workers to maintain production thereby increasing surplus value by lowering wages. For the first time in history, they considered the opportunity of mass production and the profits it could generate. The result was a phenomenon we've seen repeatedly over the last 200 years. The political and economically powerful readily accept the ways technology disrupts livelihoods in order for wealth accumulation to go unimpeded. Workers try to keep pace with technological development and, increasingly, don't have time to notice the ways in which their power is eroded. Busyness, after all, serves economic and political functions. The Luddites, and all worker movements since, struggled against the ways the rich and powerful controlled their lives and meted out meager compensation. So they were comfortable with machinery. They'd been using tools for years. If technology was going to be used in a way that benefited everyone, they were happy with it. They saw this really not as a technological fight, but an economic fight. When the Luddites started breaking machines, it was because they had lost their attempt to mitigate the way that economic change would happen. As Winterson says, the fight wasn't against technology or progress. The fight was against economic, political, and social exploitation. 
Today, we still face economic, political, and social exploitation through technology. What's changed is our perception of that technology and our relationship with work. Unlike factory workers in the early 19th century, modern workers identify more with owners and entrepreneurs than they do with their fellow workers. We lack durable associations with institutions that once provided a locus for organizing. Instead, entrepreneurial individualism becomes the only filter we have through which to understand how we fit into society. As Byung-Chul Han argues, 21st century society is no longer a disciplinary society, but rather an achievement society. Its inhabitants are no longer obedience subjects, but achievement subjects. They are entrepreneurs of themselves. Entrepreneurship, whether in spirit or actual fact, becomes the chief way we relate to technology at work. And this, in turn, opens the door to self-exploitation. ClickUp is a project management app that claims to save users one full day of work per week. At the same time, it boasts the ability to get more done. Now, one can resolve this seeming contradiction by realizing that saving a day of work means having an extra day to get more done. Now, full disclosure, our podcast production agency runs on ClickUp. Project management apps like ClickUp represent one style of digital tailorism. Digital tailorism is an extension of the manufacturing management practices that originated with Frederick W. Taylor in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He was kind of a, a, an industrial engineer, but he got his start uh, working on the shop floor. That's Gavin Muller, the author of Breaking Things at Work, in an interview on The Chris Voss Show. He came from a wealthier background. Some people, you know, they, they, they work a blue-collar job and they develop a kind of blue-collar sensibility. Not Frederick Taylor. He, uh, he, he worked in the factories. He did not like his coworkers. He thought they were lazy. He thought they were dumb. He thought he was better than they were. Taylor, believing that the workers he supervised were not working as hard or as fast as they could, used a stopwatch and finely tuned divisions of labor to maximize the productivity and efficiency of his shop. So he works his way up and eventually he starts saying to the factory owners, he's like, look, you guys have a problem, right? We need to revolutionize how people are working. Your problem is you don't actually know how anything in your factory is made. You own the factory, you buy the equipment, you have some kind of vague notion, but then you just let the workers do whatever they're going to do. And let me tell you, those workers are, are they're pretty lazy. They're slow. They could be doing a better job. They could be doing it faster. This practice quickly spread throughout the United States and became the blueprint for managing all kinds of work. There was a lot of kind of dodginess around his his process. But I think his philosophy was a breakthrough and kind of has led us to where we are today. His major philosophical breakthrough was if workers know how things are made and management doesn't, workers have the power. If management knows how things are made and workers don't, because maybe you said, okay, worker, you're only going to do one tiny little task. We're just going to keep you focused on one thing at a time. And we're going to make sure you get 
faster and faster, work harder and harder. And we're going to take care of how things are made. We're going to plan everything out. Then management has all the power. That fundamental element, you want to take control of the work process away from workers and put it in the hands of management is a motivating factor, not just behind management, but in, in behind a lot of the technology that's introduced into work. Now, ClickUp and similar apps not only make it possible to easily track the status of work and collaborate with other team members, but they provide time tracking and reporting tools that allow managers to monitor the productivity of the people on their teams. With this kind of surveillance, workers lose control of the intensity and pace of their work. What's more, the Tayloristic tools embedded in these apps create a managerial panopticon. The worker could be observed at any time, so the worker adopts the manager's perspective and controls themselves. This is a political transformation. In pre-capitalist work, the worker often controlled their own labor and received the benefits of its product directly or indirectly. In 19th and 20th century capitalism, the worker submitted to the control of the boss in exchange for a wage, while the product of the work benefited the owner or shareholders. Today, in 21st century capitalism, the worker is controlled by an internalized manager engaged in self-surveillance, while the product of the work still benefits owners and shareholders. In the course of this transformation, today's workers share the experience of weavers and machinists in the 19th century. Muller writes, quote, Scientific management was, then, less a science of efficiency and more a political program for reshaping the worker as a pliant subject, what Taylor himself called a complete mental revolution on the part of the working men toward their work, toward their fellow men, and toward their employers. On the surface, the individual worker's motivation to be more productive may seem like an exercise of autonomy. But just below that is the logic of capitalism and the self-surveillance that comes from the complete mental revolution Taylor prescribed. That fundamental philosophical conception by this, you know, nerdy little guy from 100 years ago is still operational in the most advanced kinds of digital technology in these new jobs that are emerging today. Any new technology that compels us to work more also has the effect of de-skilling the work. To illustrate, let's move away from ClickUp and the project management apps to a different breed of app, the social media scheduler. In 2021, I opened my TEDx talk with my disdain for social media scheduling apps. Little did I know then that I was making a ludistic argument. A social media scheduling app allows influencers, marketers, and creators to batch create posts and then schedule them to release one by one over time. One might produce, say, 20 Instagram posts, duplicate those to Facebook and LinkedIn, and then schedule them to post every other day. Boom! That's 40 days of social media content across three platforms. 
My issue with social media scheduling apps then as it is now is that creating content in that way prioritizes quantity over quality. While it's not impossible to generate a month or even a week's worth of quality content at a time, these apps and the platforms they post on nurture the opposite motivation. As a result, our feeds are clogged with homogenous, mediocre content in vast quantities. Even when someone creates something original or rigorous, others quickly parrot it, and its form loses all meaning. In the process, the highest rewards often accrue to the early copies rather than the original work. The overall effect on creators is de-skilling. With the priority on mass production and hyper-efficiency, creators become content machines and often talk about being on the hamster wheel of content creation. If you are not producing 100 pieces of content for Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, podcast, every single day, you are leaving the greatest opportunity in the world on the table. 100. 100. That's a fuckload. It becomes much less about the skill or creative potential of the work and much more about meeting a semi-self-imposed quota. Dear YouTube, it's Nate. I did it again. I've burnt out. So I wanted to let you know that I am breaking up with you forever. Or at least until I feel like getting back together again. Studies show that creators who experience burnout overwhelmingly attribute it to this relentless push for more and more content. Young creators are burning out. It is no surprise that you're going to see headlines from the New York Times, CNN, and more. We're getting this news from some of our favorite media. We're seeing titles like young creators are burning out and breaking down, or YouTube's top creators are breaking down in mass. I think that this is a really important topic, especially as a creator-centric channel here at Sidewalker Daily. We are speaking to the creator and we need to speak about burnout. It's rampant in our industry. No one but social media platform shareholders benefit from all this production. Users are increasingly dissatisfied by what they find on social media platforms. Creators are frustrated by what they have to do to get their work noticed. And again, we can observe this same pattern in all forms of value production aided by technological progress. Muller explains that the way we go about work, its practices and technologies, are driven by what decreases expenses and increases prices. This occurs regardless of whether those same practices and technologies also increase the effectiveness or usefulness of what's produced. Further, work practices are developed without regard for whether they make workers' lives better. Instead, the worker is merely an extension of the technology itself. Creators are indeed a mere means of production for social media platforms. Platforms worry less about what is being created and more about how much is being created. More content generates more ad inventory. More ad inventory means more ad sales, more ad sales mean more profit. But today, it's not only in relation to platforms or employers that workers suffer under practices built for profit rather than human progress. 
Today, it's often how we treat ourselves. We're both boss and worker. We consider changes in our schedules, our routines, or our software based on whether those changes will drive productivity and efficiency rather than whether they're compatible with what we want for our lives. We allow and even encourage Tayloristic self-surveillance through the technology that we use. We accept de-skilling and the compulsion to do more because we've fully integrated the managerial mindset that workers have historically struggled against. What is it? This, Jen, is the internet. <laughs> That's right. This is the internet. The whole internet. <laughs> yep. I offer a loan of it so that you could use it in your speech. It's so small. That's one of the surprising things about it. So I can really use it in my speech? What if someone needs it? Oh, no, no. People will still be able to go online and everything. It'll still work. Oh, good. <laughs> I tell you, you present this to the shareholders and you will get quite a response. Mm. If anything were to happen to this box, the world as we know it would fall into chaos. Planes would drop from the sky like tables. Society would tear itself apart like an angry child with a napkin. Man's primeval instinct to survive at any cost would lead to terrible violence. So please, no flash photography. Having been a very online person for the better part of 20 years and a frequent user of social media, I am quite familiar with the collective sigh of relief that happens every so often when the internet stops working. By the internet, I mean those times when Amazon Web Services has a hiccup and multiple websites go down, or when Gmail mysteriously stops updating for a few hours or when Facebook goes down and takes Instagram with it. And who among social media's early adopters can forget the beloved fail whale that would appear when Twitter went down? It's at those times that we realize, for just a brief moment, the extent to which all autonomy has been bled out of our work. We realize we can train our attention on something else, we can set aside our anxiety that we're not posting, emailing, or connecting enough. The Luddites were known for deliberately sabotaging the machinery they were required to use on the job. They smashed, burned, and dismantled what they saw as a direct threat to their livelihoods. What started in the early 19th century became a long legacy of manipulating the means of production to control the pace of work. To this day, workers figuratively or literally throw a wrench in the works to create a slowdown or instigate a break. That said, knowledge workers today rarely have the same tools available to them. Instead, we get a brief taste of the spirit of Luddism when a hacker's DDoS attack makes it temporarily impossible to use an app or website. Of course, people unfamiliar with the grind of knowledge or creative work say that we could always quit social media or unplug for the weekend. And heck, plenty of us work from home now. We can take a break whenever we want, right? But this response ignores the reality on the ground today. Pushed into precarious work relations and lacking any meaningful social safety net, today's knowledge workers and creatives have lost control. 
As Anne Helen Peterson observes, many workers engage in LARPing, that is live action role-playing, their jobs early in the morning and late at night in order to appear more plugged into the needs of the business. It might be perfunctory and useless, but it's still mental bandwidth devoted to work. People don't answer emails from bed because they like to or want to. They're expected to on one level or another. Now, one way that today's creatives and knowledge workers attempt to assert some autonomy is through automation. By employing tools like the project management and social media scheduling apps I discussed earlier, in addition to no-code integration tools like Zapier and IFTTT, they offload parts of their work onto software. What is automation? Automation is a technique used to operate something automatically. It saves time, eliminates human error, and most importantly, it solves problems. Automation might sound fancy or futuristic, but you have to remember the future's right now. But far from having the effect of increasing autonomy or freeing up time, these tools tend to constrain the creative and social nuance in contemporary work. Sure, these technologies make certain tasks faster, but they also force us to work within their parameters. And they eliminate the creative and social engagements in work that often lead to serendipitous discoveries. Further, they reinforce our work silos. I have my set of apps, you have yours. While so-called no-code apps do open the door to really cool stuff like auto-updating personal archives and eliminating the back and forth of trying to schedule a meeting, they don't offer a true path to liberation from exploitation. In fact, automation re-inscribes the logic of capitalism. Redemption from capitalism and its violence, writes Muller, will not come from a simple appropriation of its devices. Using ChatGPT to draft social media posts or quickly research an assigned project may very well make it possible for someone to earn a more comfortable living or attain work they wouldn't have otherwise had access to. But that comfort will always be short-lived because the quotas, self-imposed or otherwise, will always go higher and the temporary comfort that one creates will inevitably create a more durable discomfort for others. The most compelling case for unchecked technological progress is the potential for it to allow us to spend less time working and more time on leisure. Or at least, that was the case I always found the most compelling. But I'm sad to say, buying that argument requires a completely ahistorical perspective on the future. We've had unchecked technological progress since at least the time of the Luddites. Although, as an aside, I learned that the stocking frame was first invented in the late 16th century by a man named William Lee. And when he presented it to Queen Elizabeth I for a patent, she denied him over concern for the livelihoods of English craftsmen. This check on technological progress was devastating for Lee, who died well before the stocking frame was widely adopted. 
it wasn't for another 150 years or so that the stocking frame made an impact on textile workers that inspired the Luddite resistance. Now, as I've cited probably all too often, John Maynard Keynes believed that productivity in rich capitalist countries would increase at such a pace as to allow for a 15-hour work week by, well, now. He was right about the productivity, but wrong about the work week. All of our productivity creates an ever-growing supply of goods and services. And that supply of goods and services only serves to increase our demand for them, and more beyond it. This is called induced demand, what Packy McCormick at Not Boring calls one of the funniest concepts in economics. And when we talk about supply and demand, it's pretty commonsensical to say that when demand increases, the market responds with additional supply. But induced demand describes the opposite force. When the market generates additional supply, consumer demand increases. McCormick relates this to efficiency using the Jevons paradox, an economic concept that shows that as something becomes more efficient, people consume more of it. These two concepts are a good way to think about how Keynes's prediction went so wrong. Technology has made work more productive and efficient, and so there is more work time available, and then more demand for that time. As productivity and efficiency continue to increase, the demands on our time only become greater as more of our lives are brought under the influence of markets. The result is that our attention focuses on keeping up with demand, we struggle to keep up. Yes, with work, but also with parenting, health, friends, politics. We know that our time and attention are overtaxed, but we lack the bandwidth to recognize why or how we can enact change. We lack the bandwidth to recognize how many people are in the exact same situation and how much power we could have if we banded together. Right now, multiple states are rolling back restrictions on child labor. Unemployment remains at historic lows, even as businesses continue to claim that nobody wants to work anymore. We become more productive and more efficient, but simply can't keep up with the increasing demand for our labor. Without meaningful political struggle, the demand for our labor will only increase as technology continues to progress. Whether we're in traditional labor relations, self-employed, creating for platforms, or doing gig work, the call to do more won't let up just because ChatGPT can write a shitty blog post or handle a customer service query. We're so used to blaming our busyness on our own inability to say no or hold a boundary. We assume that retail therapy and keeping up with the Joneses fuels our drive to work more and earn more. I don't think we can get a free pass as consumers, but what if those habits are also a direct effect of induced demand for our labor? In other words, what if we're so busy precisely because technology increases our capacity to work? What Mahler proposes is not a slower lifestyle. 
He doesn't see Luddism as a call for mindfulness or even ethical living. It's not even anti-technology. It is, echoing Winterson, anti-exploitation. It's anti-production for production's sake. It's against work as an end and meaning in itself, as David Graeber put it. Luddism today can be a line in the sand. It's an opportunity to notice how technology changes how we work, as individuals and as a society, and refuse to allow that change to produce more work. Refuse to allow that change to limit our self-direction and autonomy at work. Refuse to allow that change to colonize our non-working time. Luddite action today might be refusing to push the same social media update to five different platforms. It might be checking your email once a day. Luddism could be managing your own to-do list manually instead of letting an app do it for you. It could be taking one-on-one -on -one meetings on the phone instead of over Zoom or even having coffee dates at actual coffee shops. To be clear, there is no moral benefit to doing things manually. You don't get extra points for eschewing automation. What you do get is an opportunity to observe yourself doing a task or creating your work. You also gain appreciation for the work others do with or without the latest technology. You remember that there is something more to work than getting it done as fast as possible. And that's a powerful political position. Not everyone has the means or privilege to throw a wrench in the works. But for those of us who do, we might consider how instigating a work slowdown could help liberate others. You can find Gavin Muller's book, Breaking Things at Work, The Luddites Were Right About Why You Hate Your Job, at versobooks.com in my bookshop.org shop, or wherever you buy books. And I recommend checking out Muller's interview with Paris Marks on one of my favorite podcasts, Tech Won't Save Us. Every episode of What Works is also published as an essay. Find the complete archive and subscribe to get new essays delivered straight to you at read.explorewhatworks.com. That's read.explorewhatworks.com. I often spend weeks researching and writing What Works episodes and essays so that I can bring you something different from what you hear on most podcasts about work, business, and leadership. If you appreciate the unique perspective and in-depth research I put into What Works, please support my work by becoming a paid subscriber. For just $7 a month, you get access to bonus content and make it possible for me to spend less time making things to sell and more time making things that everyone can access. To support What Works, go to read.explorewhatworks.com and upgrade your subscription. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media, a boutique production agency for podcasters who are changing our assumptions about culture, 
leadership, and business. Today's episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. Marty Seafelt is our audio engineer. Sean McMullen is our executive producer. What Works is recorded on the ancestral homeland of the Susquehannock people, and the Yellow House is located on the unceded land of the Kutunaha Nation. <laughs>